0: for how Jesus Christ, uh, by His birth, His life, His death and resurrection, welcomes us as sinners into a reconciled relationship with God, and then how Christ gives us an example and calls us to welcome one another and to even welcome the outsider as God in Christ has welcomed us. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, usually don't get this spiel until the beginning of 2024, so I'll just stop there. And you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles uh, to Luke chapter 1, it'll be on the screen as we go along. Uh, But as we get started, a couple of somewhat unrelated things that I need to uh, highlight before we get going. First are the Gen 12 pledge cards you received in your bulletin today. There should be a little uh, cutout handout card that you have there. These are your 2024 giving pledges. Uh, to special projects like our Far-Flung Family Missionary Retreat, which I laid out in much more in other projects, which I laid out in more detail in an email uh, last week to the church and also in a sermon two weeks ago. Um, we'd like to get these pledges back by December 17th. December 17th. And you can either just fill out this card and put it in one of the offering boxes by the, the exits to the worship center, uh, or you can also fill these out online. There's a link to it in the email that I sent. And also, there's. You could just go to northwake.com/gen12, and there will be an online form that you could fill out there as well. So that's thing number one. Thing number two is tonight's gathering for prayer is an important one for our church members as we continue to pray for the financial needs of our church, uh, as we vote on our 2024 budget, and also vote on whether or not to adopt the recently proposed mission statement. So. Lots of voting to do, uh, so warm up your hands, get ready to raise the roof with all those, all those votes. So, uh, and then the third thing, sorry, is there a lot of noise coming out of my microphone or is it just it's coming from somewhere else? We're okay. Okay, thanks, buddy. Um, third, uh, please do be in prayer for our executive pastor, Jake Mason, and his family. Uh, Jake's mom suffered a massive stroke on Tuesday, and she's in critical condition at Wake Med. So, we're praying for swelling in her brain to go down, uh, for wisdom for their providers, and then peace for their family, Uh, Jake's dad, Kenny, especially. So, let's take a moment to pray for all these things, and then we'll uh, get into the book of Luke. Let's pray. So, Lord, we do pray. we, can, we give you thanks for, for a generous church and all the wonderful uh, ministries we've, we've been able to do through the Gen 12 offering over the last few years. Uh, we pray that our sacrificial giving will be out of love and joy and honor to you and that you'll be, bring great good through your kingdom uh, through the gifts that we give. We pray that also just for the general financial needs of our church as well. Uh, we pray for our meeting tonight as we pray and plan and, and vote as a church, um, looking ahead to next year, that in all things we would seek to be unified and that we would seek uh, to see your son glorified. And then also, Lord, we do pray for um, our friend, a fellow pastor, and leader in our church, Jake uh, Shelley, his family, his brother Josh, his dad Kenny, their, their kids, Lord, um, and for his mother Elaine, we don't know what level of responsiveness she can hear from us these days, but we know that you can speak to someone uh, in a place where a uh, man's voice and lips cannot, cannot get to. So would you meet Elaine where she is uh, in, in the ICU? Um, minister to her there by, by your own spirit. And we do ask for your healing and for your help and for your peace to be upon their family. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So, uh, hope, psychologists tell us, isn't just a nice thing to live with, like icing on the cake. It's nice. It's nice to have some hope. It's really an essential survival mechanism. Uh, Hope generates action. It produces resiliency uh, in hard times. It pushes us to work towards a better future, but psychologists also tell us to be careful with that because... Hope must be grounded in some sort of realistic outcome, not just a hopeful, uh, optimistic, wish, you know, hoping for the best kind of thing. Otherwise, you're just tricking yourself. Real hope, not baseless optimism, must have an object, must have something to go on, something to work with. Now, these early chapters of Luke's gospel are essentially, and ironically, if you're a Star Wars fan, a new hope. Luke wants to give us some hope that we can have certainty about our faith, uh, that God still has a plan for the world, and that God does not forget about His people and their needs and their hurts and the details of their lives in the midst of that big plan that He's bringing about in the world. Now, of course, uh, you probably know the story. The, The object of that hope is Jesus Christ, but we don't get to meet Him yet. Uh, Not quite in in this story. Luke has some prologue work to do that gives us context and background to the birth of Jesus. So he begins his book this way. Uh, Verse 1, Luke chapter 1. He says, "'Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative "'of the things that have been accomplished among us, "'just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses "'and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, "'it seemed good to me also.'" Having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Now, I really like this introduction to the book. I really like it. Why? Um, This is critical. Luke writes his narrative as a contemporary, but not an eyewitness Luke's a contemporary to the events that happened. He lived in the same time frame, but he did not see them himself. He was not a first-hand eyewitness. He's a second-hand believer, if you will. Uh, and so, meaning he had to go and investigate and weigh the testimony of the first disciples and, and of others. So, I think Luke serves really as a very helpful middleman for us, as someone who stands between the time of the events themselves but also as a person that um, actually had eyewitness to the accounts, which we, we don't. We live in 2023. Now, I think this helps us in a couple of ways to, to believe the historicity of this book. Think about it. On one hand, as a contemporary of the events, Luke couldn't just uh, make up whatever he wanted about what happened in Jesus' day and then publish his work. In fact, he even seems to invite a certain level of scrutiny or fact-checking to his work. You see uh, in those early verses, he says, you know, here's my sources, the eyewitness accounts. They were delivered to me. I mean, it would be foolish today if you were to try to publish a memoir of 9-11, 2001. Here it is in 2023. That supposedly was based on eyewitness testimony of the events, but then go on to give outlandish Uh, contradictory material and still try to convince people of the truth of your account. You know, if you were to say the Golden Gate Bridge was hit by a large jetliner on 9-11-2001, you'd have a lot of pushback. No, it wasn't. Uh, It was the Twin Towers. We, We saw it either on TV. Some of us saw it in person. So, Luke is claiming to be a reporter in his time, not a fiction writer. And many have accused the gospel accounts of essentially being legendary stories about Jesus that kind of grew and grew and grew over time. But Luke is saying, no, I'm writing in the time of these events. And this is one of the marks of the gospel accounts that convinced the great British author C.S. Lewis of their authenticity. And he said something like what I'm about to read to you in several places in his writings, but this is probably my favorite quote on this, perhaps because of the latent snarkiness at the end of the quote. You'll hear it. Uh, C.S. Lewis, he was a professor of mythology and literature. He said, I've been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, and myths all my life. I know what they are like. I know none of them are like this. Of this text, the Gospels, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage or else some unknown writer without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern, novelistic, realistic narrative. In other words, he's saying, nowadays we have fiction writing that seems really realistic. That's not how fiction was written back in the day. The reader who doesn't see this has simply not learned how to read. So, so Luke's a contemporary. Uh, he's writing in the lifetime of the eyewitnesses, but as a non-eyewitness on the other hand. So, he's a contemporary on one hand. But as a non eyewitness on the other hand, He has to do all of the same kind of legwork that you and I would have to do in order to believe. Uh, he has to weigh the testimonies of the, of the first disciples and the other gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, perhaps John was, was written by this time, but we're not sure, but definitely other gospel accounts and the accounts of the first disciples, He had to sort out the truth claims of Christianity And what to do about the resurrection of Jesus. Luke had to do that work himself. Uh, You see it in the first few verses, especially verses 3 and 4. Notice his terms. He said, he followed or he investigated all things, meaning at at a level of detail. He was very thorough, closely. I investigated, I followed all things closely or carefully For some time past, he took his time in putting this narrative together, and he went back to the beginning of the story. So you see, Luke had to do the same kind of legwork that you and I have to do in order to believe. But he got there. He gets there somehow. And I think maybe that can help some of us who wrestle with the truth claims of the Bible too. So Luke's a contemporary, but not an eyewitness. And I think that should actually be of great help to us who were many, many generations removed from the events that happened. Now, it's also quite likely that Luke was a cultural outsider to the new Christian movement. Uh, Church history tells us, as well as his name, uh, that he was a Greek, not a Jew. So, Luke wasn't necessarily predisposed to believe in a Jewish Messiah or to be waiting for a Jewish Messiah or to be biased in that way. Um, So at least it's possible that Luke had more questions, more doubts than that first group of Jewish uh, believers. So why would Luke become a Christian then? Why join the movement? Why was he able to overcome those questions? Well, that's part of one of his reasons for writing this book, to tell you, to tell tell his friend Theophilus and therefore us of, of his account. So Theophilus, that's who he writes this book to. If any of you are looking for baby names, that's an option. Uh, Theo works well as a short for that. And Luke sort of dedicates this book to his friend Theophilus, and he writes it so that his friend Theophilus can have certainty, he says, concerning the things that he had been taught about Jesus. Now, he doesn't say why Theophilus might need some reassurance at this moment, but that that kind of works out well for us because you can sort of fill in your blank. Uh, And Theophilus, the name in Greek literally translates to lover of God. So, Theos, God, Phyllis, love, lover of God. So, Luke's work is fitting and helpful for anyone who loves God but needs reassurance about the things they've been taught. So, if you've ever wondered, is Christianity the real deal? Is it from God or not? Or… Maybe you have other types of, of doubts. Maybe, maybe you wonder, has God forgotten about me in His big plan? Or if you've ever felt like an outsider and just wondered, do I really belong here? Do I really belong with the people of God? Well, this book is written for you too. So let's get into his story. Uh, Like a curator at an art museum, Luke does not put the main attraction of the story right out in the front. He sort of leads you in bit by bit and builds up the story uh, toward the birth of Christ. But we have quite a ways to go before we get there. We get some backstory first and some prologue. So, verse 5. He says, "...in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So these are the days of King Herod, the, the days of the Roman Empire's occupation over Israel. And Rome would set up these kind of puppet kings who wouldn't really be a threat to Rome's sovereignty. They would be loyal enough. And one of these was Herod. And it's in this time period, when Israel had been dominated off and on by other nations for hundreds of years, that our story begins. That's the time frame. And it begins with this priest named Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, who it also says was descended from the priestly line of Aaron. Verse 6. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, if you're, if you're a careful reader of the Old Testament, you might know that this is the perfect opportunity for something unexpected to happen. Uh, Many times in the Old Testament stories, if a woman was barren, that meant God had something special up his sleeve. Just keep reading. But of course, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they have no inkling that a dramatic turn is coming. Uh, We find out, you know, as you read through the story, that they seem to have been praying and had prayed for years that they would have a child but nothing happened. Nothing changed. I imagine by this point in their lives, they had probably stopped praying that prayer. And that ship, that ship has sailed. It's too late. And in that time, having children was more, even more highly valued than having children today. And thus, being barren was particularly shameful, even stigmatizing, I think uh, we would say. And, Though Even though it was more difficult back then, I think uh, women who've experienced fertility today still understand well enough the feelings of guilt, uh, worthlessness, bitterness, maybe anger that Elizabeth felt. I mean, she had heard all the questions, you know. So, how long have you guys been married? Hoping to have any little ones soon? I'm sure, I'm sure it'll happen soon. She had heard all that. But then their hopes of living what would have been considered in that day and age a normal life had passed. No descendants. No one to take care of you in your your old age. And yet what's remarkable about Zechariah and Elizabeth is it says they still walked with God. They were still blameless. They served Him faithfully even in their disappointment. What about us? What about you? And maybe it's not infertility, but the question still remains, will we still walk with God even when the life that you had envisioned doesn't materialize? I don't know what your dreams are, but I imagine if you live long enough, there are some of them that are just not going to pan out and you're gonna be left disappointed, maybe no husband, no wife, maybe a less than stellar marriage, maybe no good career prospects, maybe rejection from the program you worked so hard to get into. Maybe it is not being able to have children. Maybe it's having children and having terribly rebellious children. Maybe it's getting sick, having cancer. Thabiti Anyabwile writes, the righteous person is not free from suffering because he serves the Lord. We do not get everything we want just because we live well. We may live well past the years of possibility without receiving our hope, but if we are God's people, we will live righteously anyway because God is our hope. And it's worth noting that Suffering and loss here, they they don't equivocate God's displeasure with you. My life is a wreck, does not equal God hates me. Though we tend to want to draw a straight line from one to the other. Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous people, it says, but they lived with great loss and disappointment. Verse 8. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So, Zechariah was one of, supposedly, about 18,000 priests who would rotate uh, through duty at at the temple. So, he would likely serve in some way at the temple, doing something, about twice a year would have duty on, on, on duty, be on duty at temple, but only once in his entire life, if that, would he be chosen to go burn incense uh, as an offering to God at the innermost part of the temple. Many priests never got to do it, and if they did, it would only happen once. So this is a once-in-a-lifetime kind of moment for him. And what seems like chance is really God's, God's providence over all the details of Zechariah's life. You know, they say the devil's in the details. Well, it's more like God is in the details here. Verse 11, And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Now, uh, given everything I said at the beginning about Luke, Uh, laying out an investigated, reasonable, orderly account for you, you might be surprised to find an angel on the first page of the story. But Luke is not interested in modernizing his narrative to fit the cultural preferences of modern people. No angels, please. Uh, He wants to keep Christianity weird, right? Uh, This is not a naturalistic, reductionistic story. Angels, demons, God, the devil, they all exist in Luke, and they all play key roles at pivotal moments in history, like the birth of Christ, and this is one of those moments. And Luke's not embarrassed or shy about it. This is on the first page of the story. Now, Zechariah's reaction to the angel is how most biblical characters react to seeing an angel. It's not like the sweet lady from Touched by an Angel who's sent by God to help you in your time of need, you know. This uh, seems to be a fearsome, awesome being that has the general effect of scaring people to death. And so the angel says to him, verse 13, do not be afraid, Zechariah, i.e. I'm not here to kill you, I think. For your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. John. So the angel gives Zechariah the earliest gender reveal party ever, pops a balloon with blue tissue paper that falls out before the baby's even conceived. And the name is given as well, John, which means God is gracious. Fitting, indeed. Zechariah's prayer has been heard. But you kind of wonder as you read the story, which prayer? Is this Zechariah and Elizabeth's long-held prayer for a son, which at this point they thought was totally past being answered? Or were these Zechariah's prayers for the restoration and the salvation of Israel, which it seems like all the people outside are praying for something like that? Or does God have a way of answering the big prayers while still looking out for the needs of His people? Verse 14, and you will have… Joy and gladness. And many will rejoice at his birth. So the little prayer gets answered, but then also, verse 15, the big prayer for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink because of his role as a spokesman or prophet for God. And he will be filled with, or led by, and controlled by the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared." So this son John, this is his job description, this is what he's going to do. He's going to go before the Lord to prepare the people for his arrival, to reform them, to invite them to repent or turn. This, you see that language, to turn toward the Lord their God to live differently, to get off the crooked path, onto the right path, as they await God's further intervention. It says John is kind of the next Elijah, who was a revered prophet of Israel years and years before this. And so Luke chooses to riff on or loosely quote what is now in your Bibles the very last verse of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, or some of the last verses. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. This is Malachi. and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a, de- with de- with a decree of utter destruction. So do you see the similarities between the angel's pronouncement about John to this Malachi passage? Look back again. Verse 16 of Luke chapter 1, he'll turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the disobedient of the wisdom to the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So it says John, through his preaching, he's going to ready some of the people for the Messiah. He'll challenge them to turn from a self-centered life to a God-centered life. He's trying to get a people ready to recognize and join God's work in the world. And I think it's interesting how um, it's interesting, interesting how this passage illustrates what it looks like to turn to the Lord. It says, fathers' hearts are turned to their children. Children to their fathers, the disobedient of the wisdom to that of to the wisdom of the, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, which is most likely a way of saying that a big part of returning to God is reconciling with others. Turning to God brings a a tenderness toward others. And dads, maybe there's a special note for us in here. It seems like a godly life means a tender heart towards your kids. Uh, It's easy for men to find so much of their significance in life from their success in work or the fun they have in recreation or whatever else and to neglect their duty to really know and engage with their kids. And let's be honest, it, it is easy to be selfish with our time, with our energy, to put our best efforts into work or fun or our screens and to overlook our kids. But when God moves in someone's life, He brings an others-centeredness, and especially perhaps of fathers and parents, in helping us be tender, to give healthy attention, training, and enjoyment, and care for our children. It's a mark of God's work in your life that your hearts are turned toward your children to love them and lead them in Christ. There's other ways. Uh, Turning to God, this is is part of what the Advent season is meant to do for us as a church. It's meant to train us or prepare us for the coming of Christ. Uh, In church history, Advent was not just about looking back on the story of Jesus' birth. It was about looking ahead to when He will come again in glory and power to put all things right. In other words, Advent is not just about celebration, it's about preparation. We wanna be a people who are prepared for the Lord, who are living God-centered lives, who are ready to meet our King upon his arrival. And you know, we light these Advent candles as a way of reminding ourselves that the world is a dark place, but that Christ brings hope and joy and peace and love to the darkness of the world. But these candles also remind us, and when we light all our individual little candles like the Christmas Eve service, it reminds us that we are to keep our wick burning, to be filled with the hope and joy and peace and love of Christ as we await His second coming. Advent is not just about celebration. It's about preparation. How might it be that for you this season? But back to Zechariah for a bit. Uh, when he hears this promise, his candle flickers, his faith wavers, just like ours does. Zechariah is not a hero, he's a human. And he asks, verse 18 Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Notice how, although he's foolish enough to doubt God, Old Zachariah still knows better than to just call his wife an old woman outright. I am an old man, but my wife, and my wife is advanced in years. Uh, Smart guy. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news." And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Now, Zechariah's response is a very familiar response in the Bible. It's almost identical to Abraham's, if you know his story in Genesis, when he's told that he will have a child. He just doesn't see how this could possibly work out, and it seems like godly people doubt. Godly people doubt. They shouldn't, but they do. Uh, And Gabriel's response is pretty great. He's like, how shall you know? Like, you want a sign? I don't know. How about maybe an angel appearing to you and speaking to you? Do you not know where I came from? Do you know who I work for? Uh. Mark Mitchell says, Gabriel was a famous angel who would have been well known to Zechariah. So not only do you have an angel, you have a mad angel. Not only do you have a mad angel, you have a famous mad angel. And he says, don't you know who you're talking to? Don't you know where I've been hanging out? What kind of sign did you want? And he picks up his remote control and pushes the mute button and says, if you want a sign, I'll give you a sign. You'll be unable to speak until my promise is made good. I looked for one of these on Amazon. I could not find one. Um, Yeah. Larry Trotter pointed out to me that God's choice tool for helping chase out Zechariah's unbelief was silence, nine months of it. And it seems like in silence, God often has access to us in ways and can change us in ways that just don't happen with noise and hurry. Now admittedly it's probably better to voluntarily choose times voluntarily choose times of silence and reflect upon God's words than having it forced upon you. It kind of begs a good question, do you make time for silence in your world? Especially in this crazy season. Or is it always input 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 noise noise noise? Is there any space in your world for giving God a few moments of quiet reflection without your phone, a morning here and there, to be silent before his words and in prayer? For thus says the Lord God, Isaiah chapter 30, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and trust shall be your strength. Silence is a powerful tool in God's hands to shape us and grow our faith. Embrace it. Verse 21. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And here we have the beginning of the great tradition of playing games at Christmas, charades specifically. I mean, a poor guy, I, I feel bad for him. Everybody's worried about why he's still in the inner sacred room of the temple, what he's doing, You're not really supposed to go get him. But then when he emerges, he's not even able to give like the closing blessing and dismiss everyone, but he's trying to use hand signals to express what he'd seen and heard. So, right there, he plays charades, trying to explain about an angel, maybe a son. I don't know how that looks, but it had to be a riot. Verse 24, And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden. Speaking of eventful games of charades, how in the world is Zechariah supposed to explain all this to Elizabeth? Ed Raul writes, I hope this doesn't sound irreverent, but I sure wish the Bible recorded the conversation that went on when he got back home to his wife. Although he couldn't speak, he could read and write. So I imagine Zechariah wrote a note and passed it to Elizabeth. She read it and responded, the angel said, what? And now you want to what? (laughs) Husbands have been known to come up with some creative excuses, but this one seemed over the top to her. Now, of course, Luke skims right over all this uh, and he gets to the heart of the matter and he gives Elizabeth's heart response, which makes me think maybe he talked to her or Mary or whoever they told the stories to. And it's an e- it's an echo of uh, Rachel's words in Genesis chapter 30. She says, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. What's she saying? She's saying, in the middle of his great big plan to save the world, God didn't forget about me. He didn't forget about my pain. He saw me, He looked on me, and He took away my disgrace. Now, it's true. God has a great big plan for the world to see His beloved Son, Jesus Christ, glorified in the midst of His people. But you know, that big story weaves your little story into it as well. God notices you. He sees your reproach. All the gritty details deepest sorrows and hidden shame of your life are seen and noticed and accounted for and, yes, will one day be redeemed in Christ. Because Christ, when he came in some mysterious way, he bore our shame. He bore our reproach so that he could take it away from us forever. Jesus Christ Would bear our ultimate disgrace and our innermost pain and even our sin so that we could say what Elizabeth said here God has looked upon me and He's taken away my reproach. He loved me, He's removed from me every insecurity, shame, dishonor, and disgrace. I don't know maybe you find yourself disappointed with God for how your life has gone but in his time and in the end he will see to it that all who wait for him are cared for and he will remove their reproach Elizabeth's prayer sounds like she had been reading Isaiah chapter 25 when Isaiah looked ahead and said and he God will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God we have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Let's pray. So, Lord, we, do, we thank you for this word. We thank you for using Luke, uh, an outsider, not an eyewitness, to put this story together for us so that we can have certainty knowing the things that have happened, knowing that you, you do still have a plan for this world. You've not left us alone to rot, but you're still working. your work in the world, even when we don't see it, even when we pray long prayers and don't see answers. And two, how Luke helps us see that in the midst of your big plan, you have not forgot about each one of us and that for all who wait for you, all who trust in you, sooner or later we will be able to say, you have taken away our reproach and disgrace. This is the Lord. We have waited for you. Help us as your people to be glad and rejoice in the salvation that we have and that we still wait for. Make us a people prepared. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.